I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Team Human is an ad-free listener-supported project made possible by teammates like Brendan McCallum, Ron Suarez, Cameron Zielinski, Quan, Gabrin Gray, Yosef Needleman, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others who gain access to our Discord channel, my paywalled medium posts, archives of my writing and conversations, and participation in our live Team Human salons in the Kibitz Room. See you there. You're on Team Human, our new monthly recording from the Kibitz Room, an evolving conversation with the Team Human community about the issues and ideas leading them to think about the relationship between people, power, technology, capitalism, spirit, and our shared understanding of what the heck is going on here. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I don't usually do a monologue for these kibitz room conversations because I talk so much already. But this one's a little topical, and it's actually in response to some emails I got this morning, so I may as well. I haven't been uh, thinking or talking much about Twitter since the uh, change of regime. I mean, after the first couple of days, it just looked like a a mess, and I moved over to Mastodon, and I've been posting links to my... uh, medium pieces on there and to podcast episodes, but I'm not participating on the platform. It just, I I always feel so awful after I read or see what's going on, particularly how the platforms become so much about itself. But um, this week, Elon Musk, he posted this poll um, asking if he should step down 
as CEO and said it would be binding, that he would do what people wanted. And they're voting for him to step down. So assuming he doesn't change his mind following this promise to abide by the community-wide referendum on his reign, uh, this little social network may be in for a change in leadership. And I'm hoping um, direction, because even if Twitter sucks, there's a lot of potential energy, and a huge community in that platform. So here's what I would do if I were in charge. First, I would just scrap the algorithm. The algorithm, for those of you who haven't been paying attention, it's all that programming that decides what ends up in a person's feed, what posts to boost to whom, how to determine what's trending, how to direct ads at different people. I wouldn't change it, tweak it, or adjust it. I would just scrap it. Then Twitter would work like it did in the old days, with users simply receiving the tweets of the members they follow. Imagine that. And if the algorithm teams are good, I mean, there's a ton of people writing those things. If they're good and they want to stay, I would ask them what they'd like to be working on instead. You know, after witnessing the horrors of social media and its influence on society up close, how would they want to deploy their skills right now? I'd let them set up a skunk works or some sort of extended development hackathon and then let them make consensus decisions on what they want to build together. Then add a few product people to help figure out how to get these things to market and see what happens. I would consider proposals for user-tuned algorithms where a user could ask the platform to filter or boost posts based on certain criteria, or maybe just have an open API where people could make their own. But these would all have to work in a transparent way and require users maybe to, to check in at least quarterly to observe how their tuned feed differs from what would otherwise be coming to them. Call it a, a mandatory reality check. Uh, second, I'd have the company accept responsibility for itself as a publishing platform. So instead of Musk's content moderation council or user polls, I would put significant resources, maybe 50% of the company's budget to an editorial department to exercise what we used to call journalistic standards and practices. This means that the posters are really writers and the platform is a publication. So the writers, they're paid with free global distribution of their writing. The publication, Twitter, gets these free mini articles. But as a publisher receiving advertising revenue, the platform ends up responsible for the content. So then you ask, well, won't this make for a less profitable company? Actually, uh, no, especially if Twitter implements my third proposal, which is to shift from a growth-based enterprise to one that emphasizes ongoing revenue and profit. If that doesn't make sense right away, read my book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity. It's from, what, 2016, and I lay out how a company can be revenue-based instead of growth-based. 
Because in Twitter's case, shortly after Twitter became a public company, its $2 billion in annual revenue was declared an abject failure by Wall Street. Why? Because the company had peaked around that level. Investors don't want consistent revenues. They want growth. Revenues create dividends, which are taxed like income. Growth? Investors often, they don't pay any tax at all on growth. And who wants 20% return on their investment every year when they can make 100x on their money by pumping up a company with algorithmic steroids, then selling their shares to the next group of saps? The requirement to grow, that's what leads CEOs to make these really stupid decisions, like building out new apps and services that compromise the integrity of the thing that's actually working. Twitter was really working, so much so that many of us began thinking of it as a, as a utility instead of just another social network. What distinguished Twitter from Facebook, and I wrote a piece about this back in 2013 when I left Facebook, was that it wasn't driven by algorithms. You didn't have to pay for your own followers to see your posts. There was less, less play in the steering wheel, less obscurity, less user manipulation. It was Twitter's big investors who were demanding that it grow the way Facebook did, and they forced that series of bad decisions that turned it into an angry disinformation cesspool. Fourth, I would try to shift the editorial and ownership structure to a commons or even a DAO, run it like a, a variation on Reddit, Metafilter, or Wikipedia. Community editors participate as moderators and content regulators with their activity measured and rewarded with a stake in the platform ownership and governance. Over time, say a period of 10 or 15 years, ownership shares are shifted from the cash investors to the working community. Or instead of using a calendar, shift investor shares once they've earned 5x on their initial investment. So following this path, Twitter could become less sensational and controversial, more like a utility or town square, making less news itself, but serving to inform and connect people to the news, information, and ideas that matter to them. I've pretty much stayed away from Twitter since the regime change. It's just been too awful to watch the platform become mostly about itself. That's usually the death knell of any institution. But the path to redemption is clear and easy, especially without the pressure of being a public company with an obligation to serve shareholders over everyone else. Much of our Silicon Valley billionaire elite were hoping that Musk's takeover of Twitter would function as a proof of concept for their vision of a new form of techno-monarchy. First Twitter, then the world. But this escapade has only proved the opposite. It is not civil society and government that need tech leadership. It is technology that needs to retrieve the mechanisms of civil society and collective governance. It's not rocket science. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And now for our main featured event, the Team Human Community coming to you alive from the Kibitz Room. The way we usually do these kibitz rooms is pretty, I mean, we've been doing them as kind of Q&A-ish things, and, and I will try to think of a better way to do this than this sort of one-at-a-time thing, but it seems like, you know, call-in radio is sort of the easiest model to use for this, and if there was a much better one, they probably would have changed radio to that by now. So for now, let's do it where anybody who wants to uh, share a, an idea, story, or ask a question, or interact in any way. Uh, raise your hand, and Luke will, uh, or Josh, whoever's in charge, will invite you to the uh, uh, to come up. Oh, Grace Lunker. Great. I wanted to ask you. I was reading um, an interview you did about twenty years ago, and you said something I thought was really interesting, and I was wondering what your updated take on that would be today. You were talking about how uh, the internet is kind of like a test run for um, the change that the human species is going to undergo. Um, you were saying how, you know, the internet is kind of a test run for how we can deal with privacy, when we can all read each other's thoughts and deal with a global community when we're all realizing that we're part of the same thing. I, I, I thought the idea that uh, the internet is a test run was really interesting. I was wondering what you think um, here in the future, now that it's been about 20 years, would you say we're still in that test run? Would you say that, like, the test happened and we failed or we passed or are we still in it? I was wondering what you think about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking about that. I remember when I was explaining that and it was, you know, it was in the era of raves and the early Internet, which at raves, the early Internet and kind of advanced fantasy role playing games. And the psychedelic revival. And with each one of those things, for me, shared that same sensibility. You know, this, you know, all is one. We're a networked being. Gaia hypothesis. Reality is designed by us collectively. And we're in a consensual hallucination. All that kind of stuff was sort of the same. But what what I was concerned with was each of these areas becoming kind of like a religion. So rave becoming a religion. So then rave dance is the solution. This is the way we touch the great attractor at the end of time. This is the way we make contact with the aliens. Or you have a DMT trip and those machine elves, they are there. They're the thing. Or, you know, Quetzalcoatl has spoken to me through these mushrooms. And now I, you know, and or that the internet is the next home for human civilization. And what I was trying to do was to say, no, all of these things are metaphors and in some ways uh, maps for unexplored territories. But I was really concerned, and, and you could read like Korzybski for this or Postman writing about Korzybski for this, that we not mistake the map 
for the territory, right? So the internet is this great thing and people would say, oh, so is this the next civilization? And I would be like, no, but it's a great way of practicing for the next civilization. What would it be like if we opened our uh, neurology and sensory systems to their true capacity you know use that other 80 or 90 percent of the brain that we don't know what it's for you know and and i mean i always believed that lying was really stupid because i saw this performer once on uh, i forgot it was at a conference and he was a, a lie detector guy and like he used to get hired by the military and by the cops because he had all these ways to tell when people were lying and he demonstrated it on stage he could pick you know which person was telling the truth about this or not about that and i was like if he could do it intentionally, then I'm I'm assuming that he's using tells that we give naturally and that we all perceive subconsciously. So if we're all on some level potentially part of the same thing, potentially clairvoyant, potentially knowing each other's thoughts, then I thought that maybe the internet was a way of like, okay, let's practice for what it's going to be like when we can really hear each other. Let's go to a rave to practice what it's going to be like to experience everyone else's nervous systems at the same time. You know, let's do some psychedelics to practice what it's like to actually hear the stars or the trees, you know, when you're walking around to, to be aware of their consciousness. So it was sort of, it was sort of that. In terms of where we are now, I would say I've failed and people have mistaken the map for the territory that they look at it as real, you know, we, and, and it's because we made these things real. We put the, I was talking like that before we put the banking system on the internet, before we put business on the internet, it's like, if the internet was acid and you're like, oh, acid's really cool. And then they say, okay, let's put banking on acid. Okay, let's put the financial system on acid. You would go, no, 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 it's not for that. And that's sort of the way I still look at the internet. It was like, no, no, don't try to do serious stuff here. This is a crazy play space. Or at least, you know, don't do it to the exclusion of the of the crazy of the crazy play space. But no, I still hold these abilities are real. And I guess if I made a mistake, it was in thinking that people could practice in that way. There may be no in vitro way of practicing humanity. We may really just have to do it in in vivo, because whenever we go in vitro, whenever we, we do it outside in a way that's not integrated with real life, we mistake that. We we start to think that that's the thing. We start to think that the ritual is reality rather than than a ritual. So I don't know. We 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 certainly didn't um, succeed in using it so far the way I thought. But again, the kids that are here, kids, the twenty and thirty somethings. <laughs> That's how old I am. Who are here? They seem to get a lot of this. They seem to be uh, uh, at another, in another place with another level of of play and seriousness. So maybe just maybe the things I was talking about are maybe they're they're relevant now, even if they weren't then. Awesome. Thanks. Sure. This is Haley. Haley, hi. Hi. Um, I was just, uh, yeah, I loved the the question and sort of where it led into games because I really loved that that recent interview with Eric. Loved his book a long, long time ago. And I think like as a, like what you were talking about, like the in vivo versus vitro. And like, I just noticed that a lot about myself and games being like where I tested parts of myself, you, you know, in like online games specifically when I was younger. 
And then like in my mid 20s, it was in-person games that like with board games that really got me out of my shell and like interacting with humans. Just yeah. echoing interesting thought on games. Yeah. Did you ever do the uh, those like White Wolf games where they were called live action? Well, now we call them LARPs, live action role playing games. Did you do those? So I tried to find groups for that. It was always short lived, which is a common refrain in tabletop gaming, like trying to find a schedule everyone can play with. But I, I would say the board games which helped me the most, the like social deduction games like Werewolf. Uh, there's another good one called Coup. But it, it was interesting because my my internal rule set was don't lie, it's bad, which right. I realize a lot of people don't follow. I think like autistic people are like blunt in a special way, where like that's part of the reason why. But uh, those social deduction games got me used to sort of like playing with chaos in a fun way, where like the lie was okay in the rules of the game because that's what right. you're supposed to do, and like that. I don't know. I think that helped me read people a lot a lot better. Um, yeah, just love yeah, games. It's interesting because there are games where cheating is not cheating, but lying is part of the game, like poker, where you're yes. faking a bet, or diplomacy, where people make these deals and then break them. I was so confused the first time I played diplomacy. I made all these elaborate contracts and treaties with other players, and then they just attack me. Yeah. <laughs> like, what, do you <laughs> what did you do? But yeah, as a learning experience, it's great. And it was funny. I had a um, a theater. I used to do theater. That was my thing. And theater was my way of doing the thing that you're talking about, you know, because real life was really hard for me. But on stage and certainly in improv and all that in theater games, it opened up, you know, it was sort of like uh, I could socialize without the stakes that's a real social stake. So it's basically uh, a play space, right? But yeah. there was a theater teacher of mine. He said, if I was going to start a theater school, what I would do is for the first year, I would give every student like $100 and they would just play poker all day long. And whoever still had money by the end of the semester would get to go on to the second year. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was basically, uh, how well are you bluffing, right? How well, uh, sure. he thought that that, once you have to act, but the odd thing about it was once you're acting in the real world, it's a very different thing, isn't it? You know, faking and lying is so much harder and different. Yeah, and you can like adopt a different, it's like when I play a social deduction game, I become like this impish, mischievous person that I am not in real life. I'm usually very genuine and bubbly and forward and, uh, but yeah, you can sort of adopt a different way of being. And yeah, theater is another obvious example and makes me want to get back into improv and all that. Uh, and the whole thing with adopting that other frame of being. So then, you know, and, and Eric Zimmerman and I spoke about it on the last podcast, this, you know, this theorist Hoisinga, um, this Dutch theorist who, who wrote Homo Ludens and argued that, you know, play has to happen in a sacred circle. And for it to really count as play, there can be no kind of real world consequences of it. You can't make money. It can't mm -hmm. decide anything. You're not like playing in order to see who gets to, you know, you're not jousting to see who gets the damsel, right? You're jousting to joust, even if it's competitive, there's no, there, there can't be an outcome to it. But still, maybe it's a Western thing. But, but as we were talking about using play in this way, again, I say using play in this way. It's like, okay, so me as a socially awkward person can use play, or you could use it to experiment with this mischievous, impish character, and then ultimately, probably, you know, as a techie might say, port some of the qualities of that persona into your daily life 
so you can experiment in the game and then bring the best qualities of your game character into some difficult real world situations in order to give yourself a a broader tool set but then it's no yeah. longer and then it's not play that's like play therapy i guess at that point yeah but i think i think what you're saying is sort of uh reminds me of uh or it just reminds me of that in vitro in vivo point of like i think online games and the internet like sure you you are exercising like maybe maybe different avenues of personality like i definitely experimented with like gender uh on text-based role-playing games which was helpful because i'm glad i did and i'm sure was integral to my development but uh, i think in person adds so many layers of complexity that you're like you're you're by practicing there, you're practicing more directly relatable to uh, human day-to-day life stuff. So there's just more skills you're developing at the same time. Right. And, yeah. and that's the yeah, other thing about combo. games is you can do these things. You, know, you can do as one set of things without worrying about some whole other set of things. You know, yeah. it's it's a bit isolated. So you can you can. But again, that's why it's in vitro, right? You can it, you can say, okay, I'm just going to experiment with my with aggression now and how that works without worrying about its repercussions on the rest of my uh, rest of my existence. Yeah, yeah. Well, keep cool. keep interviewing and talking about games. I, I, yeah, I, I think like I will it. play, and I want to do some get some more theater people on there too. It would be fun. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thank you. Uh, hey, Douglas, I've been wanting to actually. I wanted to ask you a bunch of questions sense-making group and then you published your what's a metaphor and imagine a lot of people in here were kind of waiting for you to sound off directly on things that you had mentioned in passing but when i came across a lot of the people that you've mentioned in passing and in your article like people like jordan hall and the, i was watching that video with the three of those guys sitting there for however long they sat there and um almost feeling like embarrassed in front of myself watching it because of how uncomfortable it felt and how self-referential and honestly arrogant it felt. But I had found my way to this video on my own and I'm in mental health and education. And what, what I wanted to say was that what, what was so noticeable about that video and a lot of the other interviews I've heard is how it sounds like conversations, as you've mentioned, like I had with my buddies in college or in high school getting high. But like also it was just very dude oriented. What was really troubling to me in this recent sort of like path is finding myself in a space where there are no women. Um, not necessarily here, but definitely with that rebel wisdom video. What happened there? And how did I find myself in this space with no women looking like what I feel like that that's a sign that I went somewhere wrong and I found myself backing out and I saw your article but on the one hand i would say you know to 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 misquote flip wilson for anyone who's old enough to remember him you know the algorithm made you do it right it's it's there's youtube and and uh other online algorithms designed by 20 and 30 something you know white male libertarian programmers and of course it's going to end up leading you toward certain kinds of content you know it's 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 the way our technologies are built. I mean, we finally they got you know the Android phone is doing non-Caucasian skin tones on its camera properly. I mean, it took them twenty years. You know, so you know part of it is the way these technologies are tuned towards that kind of discovery. You know, and part of it is you're going to tend to find yourself. Any of us, these spaces are being 
colonized by the same sorts of colonial energies that colonized the real world. You know, you, you, you can't go to a, a main street of any, you know, reasonable sized town without running into, what are you going to run into? Starbucks, Subway, you know, uh, Panera, you know, it's going to be the, the, the Jamba Juice. You know, it's going to be the equivalent of, of, you know, white male hegemonic culture, but in its, in its uh, corporate expression. So I wouldn't feel so bad about that. There's a uh, someone who is it, Corey or somebody, Corey Doctor or somebody was saying uh, to do this experiment where you take any, basically any search term on YouTube and somewhere on the page you'll see a Jordan Peterson video, right? <laughs> it's like, sorry, at least I guess if you're a white male, they'll if, if Google knows you're a white male, you'll you'll get there eventually. They'll 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 try him on you. You know, he's part of the the kind of the poo-poo platter of, uh, you know, what's on offer when you do any kind of a search. So the fact that we find them all so 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 um, consistently is less of a concern to me than kind of what's going on there. I mean, yeah, I share the embarrassment. And the embarrassment, yes, is partly because we see ourselves in it, you know, and some element of this, of us sitting around talking about ideas and all that, it it rhymes, with sense making, even though it's not, you know, just as I can see the the you know the new uh, head of parliament in Italy, the far right person, rhymes with Team Human when she says, "We are not a number, we are not computers, we are living human beings," and you know we can't let the technocracy separate us from each. I mean, that's straight out of my stuff, right? So what's so what's that? You know, the the mental health and dude oriented part of it is is interesting to me and i feel like the I, i've been trying to put my finger on what's the danger of what they're doing and i tried to do it in those pieces to say you know and it was a very gentle way of saying when you have your eyes on the prize when you're thinking about the omega point when you're being an abstract male you know thinker looking up and out and forward rather than around you and down and and to the sides, you end up externalizing lots of harm. You end up not centering the most vulnerable. You end up in an ends justifies the means journey toward whatever you think is the best for all these people. But these guys, the weird thing is they also have, from what I can tell, the ear of a lot of people in power. You know, and what they what the maleness of it my feeling about the maleness of it is that it's somehow related to the greater male fear uh, or, or male style fear of the, the hegemony or, or the, the, the oligarchy losing its power. So we end up seeing like the sense makers advising, you know, the World Economic Forum on the Great Reset, right? Or, you know, Game B working with, you know, the oldest of the old power elite. And on the one hand, it's always, yeah, the object of the game is to get a seat at the table at the with the oligarchs. But when the reason why it seems to be white males with these slightly kind of narcissistically psychedelic ideas is that they're not a threat, you know, that on some level they're saying, okay, this great transformation is going to happen, and here's how you can we can go through that transformation without it really threatening the white male dominance of 
<laughs> society. So, and the best spokespeople for that are going to be people with some level of narcissistic personality disorder who can see their centrality as somehow an important part of of what's going on. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of working out those ideas, but but your role as a as a mental health and education professional, I think gives you uh, an interesting eye towards how these things, you know, how these things work. But I share with you, and I, I, I'm trying to cherish and relish the embarrassment because the more embarrassed I can feel, the more I can identify with what, you know, th what they're doing in their worst moments, you know, the better inoculation it is for us against doing that. And it's really easy to see, oh, I get it. Team human can't be me talking to a bunch of rich white guys about our plan for the future of reality, right? It has to be, it has to be something else. What's so troubling to me is the amount of overlap in the things that they say and believe and things that I actually say and believe, but there, that sliver of difference there is something that makes me so uncomfortable because there's so much there that they might say that I'm like, yeah, that is true, right? Like, we, yeah, we don't have shared, you know, epistemology. And yes, like certain aspects of technology are really degrading democracy, yada, yada, yada. But then like somewhere in that little space, something's wrong. And yeah. It's so weird. But, you know, that's why, you know, the way I treat it is like, I, I, I kind of uh, apply my Beavis and Butthead methodology to it, which, you know, and for me, the lesson of Beavis and Butthead is never watch coercive media alone. You know, have a friend that you can, you know, deconstruct it with a friend by your side. So Beavis and Butthead is basically these two animated characters who watch MTV videos and kind of deconstruct them in real time. I see them as responsible for breaking MTV. So when, when, and a podcast, you really, we tend to listen to podcasts and things alone or do those things alone. So I usually watch them through the filter of decoding the gurus, which is a really fun podcast. Oh, yeah. It's kind of taking the piss out of a lot of that. Or I, I watch it through Symposia, which is a group of uh, people who are kind of dedicated to reducing the ideological harm uh, being caused by other things. So it becomes a way to kind of hear some of their ideas, but in ways that are a little bit less direct and you don't have to listen for, you know, these guys who would do a four hour podcast, you know, and have 10 of them and then make listening to 10 four hour podcasts some kind of a prerequisite toward making it to the great fractal at the end of time. It's like, I'm sorry, that's just not, that's not okay. To the sense makers credit, you know, after I did that piece, I mean, two of the major sense makers emailed me and say, we should talk, right? They're not just, you know, uh, saying mean things about me on Twitter. They're like, you know, they, you may have a point, we should speak. I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying, but um, I have enough respect for the argument you've made to engage with you. So that's, you know, that's, it, that's to their credit. Hey. My name's Rowan, I'm from Seattle. And I guess this is sort of an observation which feels apposite, um, not apposite, apropos of what's already been discussed, in, especially in regards to the map being confused with the terrain and also um, aspects of play. So I've, I've recently been reading Ian McGilchrist's um, Master and the Emissary, or The Master and His Emissary to get the title of the book right, which, if uh, for those who may be unfamiliar, is a kind of re-examination and deep dive into both philosophy and the biology of hemispheric brain differences, um, which has been sort of a somewhat discredited theory for a long time because it got really overtaken by a very pop-sci presentation of it. 
but it's really, really interesting to look into uh, kind of what's going on. And that seems to be like the map being confused with the terrain being like a really good example of how the whole meta construction of society is sort of a process of the map being confused with the terrain in that the the left hemisphere isn't capable of actually having that direct experience of reality, but is also unaware of the right hemisphere's existence and tends to then think that its experience is the totality of reality. And how then play kind of is perhaps sort of somewhat of the solution to that in that if we can kind of just keep telling the left hemisphere, no, your only job is to play with things. You're not supposed to like solve problems. You just have to play with things. And then we're going to deal with the reality of things as they actually come rather than pretending that your imagination about the reality of things is the ongoing totality. It's really significant. I mean, it goes back to the first thing we were talking about, which is, you know, play as practice, you know? And so if the left brain could be taught that these are all, you're just playing, you're just playing, it's all okay, you're playing. I mean, you also have to tell the left brain you're safe. You know, I think that's sort of Mm -hmm. the precondition for it recognizing that it's play. But yeah, if you're safe, then you can kind of play and then, right, and then it doesn't sort of lock and load quite as quickly. Right, right. And then you can kind of feed it back because it's sort of, the right brain isn't, um, my understanding from from reading the book and just also because it really uh, gels with my own experience is that the right brain on its own doesn't have the ability to be creative. Like the creation act has to come from the left brain's analytical ability to take things apart and put them back together in novel ways. But then as soon as it mistakes those recreations or those those novel inventions that it's come up with as being the totality, rather than just serving it back into the larger reality to become part of the whole again, then you get stuck in this recursive kind of interior world. But the right brain is great for dealing with the moment. And it's like, as much as we're good at creating uh, possible futures and having ideas of what could happen and making possible plans, um, again, it's that like, you know, every plan, like, disintegrates like uh, on first contact with the enemy except that it's you know we should stop thinking of it as the enemy and just be whatever plans we have are going to disintegrate on first contact with reality and then we just have to let go of it and hand it back to the right brain because we only have to get through this next moment we don't have to we don't have to get to the end of the plan you just have to get through the next moment the plan might have been helpful or it might not right and then just keep reminding that left brain like no no it's okay if it doesn't pan out the way you thought it was that's fine too yeah, it goes back to Korzybski, where who you know he had this language he 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 called it E prime, where he wanted us to take is and to be out of our vocabulary. So you would never say you know this is that because once you're using is, you're creating these equivalences between the sort of the left brain um, hypothetical play state and supposedly reality. But you can't once you have a word, it's not, <laughs> it's not that you know it's you know. The, 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 you know, this this green stuff in my pocket represents money in my society at this moment is a very different thing than saying this is money, right? Well, cool. All right. We should, we thank you. We should move on to another uh, conversation. But I like that. I like this as a conversation. Thanks so much for uh, for engaging. You see, and that was, that was certainly nothing to be nervous about. That's like a little mini Team Human episode we just did. That's great. Yeah, I'm Philip, and um, I, I currently live in Oklahoma City. So first, um, you know, one thing I, I love about Team Human is that you seem to you synthesize so many elements in the world and provide uh, you know a, a concise and connected understanding. At least for me, all these disparate pieces, kind of like what Elliot was saying. I keep running into these things in different places, and I think, what what is this? This this doesn't 
seem like what what I uh, what I really was looking for. You know, once I, I at the beginning it may be that, and then I dig a little deeper, and and there there's something troubling about it to me. And I feel like you put some light on that. You know, and I especially appreciate the recent pieces, like the book where you um, gave us this idea of the mindset. And then some of your more recent pieces, like on Medium, where you've distilled out the more subtle, if not less pernicious elements of the mindset. It's um, In my mind, it's kind of this paint-by-numbers philosophy and science, where these people have started vi- with a vision of the world, and uh, then they they take all these different elements to fit into the proper pace, place. You know, a little Buddhism here, uh, a little Rushkoff there, maybe a discounted scientific theory there. And then, boom, they have this, um, what, what to me seems like a very neoliberal, like libertarian tech bro perspective. And I don't, I don't think they all, um, you know, I think some of these folks mean well, but I think that mindset virus has infected that space. You know, and I, I like especially uh, Cory Doctorow has been writing a lot about monopolies lately. And I feel like that, that thinking kind of has, has a, mon- a monopoly in the podcasting sphere. And I, I feel like it's an outgrowth of that, you know, kind of Silicon Valley uh, libertarian entrepreneurial mindset. So I guess I could go off on that for, for a long time, but I guess I should get to my question. So really, I think um, one thing that that has been clear about your writing for the last 20 or 30 years is you always seem to be one step ahead of the cultural zeitgeist. And I, I, like someone earlier mentioned, I really liked the most recent episode where you talked about play. So my question is really, what do you see as the next phase of this, um, of the cultural zeitgeist? And I hope that it has some element of play that will rediscover that. Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, I'm way better at predicting the future when I'm not trying to, right? I... <laughs> I've always called myself, I'm not a futurist, I'm a presentist. And usually my experience is I'm talking about something that's kind of unpopular. And then mm. later it ends up getting more popular. And it's as if, oh, Rushkoff predicted this. And it's like, no, I wasn't predicting that. I just liked this thing. So it's like, oh, computers, they're kind of cool. And then the internet revolution happens or, you know, or something like that. So I don't know. I'm working hard to be more hopeful, you know, and it's, it's difficult, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's because there's so many indicators of, doom and it's hard and i've got a daughter you know and i'm worried about the 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 world for her so it's not academic even it's not something that happens just like after i'm gone but and there's other young people i care about who are are and i care about the 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 trees our our elders you know (laughs) all this stuff yeah i agree with you i have i have children as well and that's one of my concerns with with some of the mindset is that you know is this going to infect my children is this going to be the world they live in but actually hearing you talk about it like you said you're a presentist presentist but uh hearing you talk about it and shine a light on it gives me hope that oh maybe this is now a dying mindset yeah i mean i do like to believe we've turned a corner i mean i I've written my books usually five or 10 years ahead. So like I wrote Present Shock, which was really about QAnon in 2013, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a, a, good, a good time before 
that happened. You know, I was writing about the way that the always on nature of these spaces and the need to do pattern recognition, the inability to see these, you know, maps as anything but territory would lead to a, a, a kind of a dangerous culture of people making connections between things as kind of you know, internet spawned conspiracy theory and, and and apocalypse thinking, which we did get. And I was writing about it that I saw, thought it was happening then, but it happened. But that was like 10 years, not 10, eight, six, eight years early. Now, mm-hmm. the, the tech billionaire thing, even though that story happened in 2018, I didn't end up writing that book till this year. And so this book comes out in when September and Elon Musk is going through his, I would argue, real-time Charlie Sheen-esque internet-based nervous breakdown, you know, before yeah. our eyes. And even though there's always going to be some diehards, and now there's, you know, what Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss are kind of on Team Musk, you know, mm-hmm. with their substacks revealing the news stories that were written. I mean, these stories were in the papers four or five years ago, acting like these are new leaks of something. You know, I don't know anyone who didn't know that Twitter was tuning its algorithm based on, you know, <laughs> what important people told them to do and who and and their own uh, political sensibilities. It's like, duh, that's what's why we don't want privatized platforms. You know, so even that sort of new journalism phenomenon notwithstanding and the pearl clutching and, and moral outrage, it's trickling around about that um i think the the in the in the main arena of this circus is we're watching the tech bros being laughed at we see zuckerberg yeah. lost 70 80 percent whatever of his stock value by betting on this metaverse that no one wants to go to you know we're seeing all of them publicly discredit themselves so I feel like this 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 book in some ways if it came out this month it would be too late you know, mm. it had to come out right before the thing started to fall apart rather than it, in it. Although I guess, I, I don't know. But but the idea that, that when I wrote it, it was almost like going to be controversial to laugh at these important people, you know, to take the piss out of them, to play a kind of emperors wearing no clothes game with them and their mindset. Um, now, I think, I feel like the public is there. So I'm yeah. optimistic about that. And if that's, where we're going into a world where the mindset no is no longer valid, that it's no yeah. longer the way Gen Z or anybody else want to do things, I think we're going to see, I can't imagine we're not going to see a return to localism, you know, to yeah. localism and circular economics. I mean, I'm seeing even Charles Eisenstadt's old book, Sacred Economics, peppered around. I'm seeing that around now. You know, I'm seeing David Bollier's stuff on the on the commons. I'm seeing a lot of the local the the local stuff by who was it the the Australian woman um I'm seeing a local is our future I'm seeing that book around mm. so if there's a next thing uh, um it's that or if there's a current thing then I'm excited about if there's a current thing that feels fun to me it's uh, permaculture and mm. the the more astute and intelligent retrieval of indigenous wisdom along with you know, biodynamics. It's like, you know, again, it's another one of these hodgepodges, but, you know, one part Rudolf Steiner to two parts Willem Reich to one part Aboriginal sensibility to, you know, three parts, yeah. uh, uh, you know, new, new, new biodynamic. And, you know, it's like, okay, there may be softer, gentler, uh, spiritually 
informed ways of engaging with nature and each other in a local felt, dare I say it, right brainish or, or, or right brain friendly way that really could much more rapidly than we realize or than it may seem help us build the kind of resiliency we're going to need for the climate change that's baked in and uh, maybe reverse a lot of these trends uh, more rapidly than we suspect. Yeah. So, so basically the, the veil of neoliberalism has been being pulled off and all of the things that it has co-opted our play, our, you know, all extracurricular activity, you know, everything will, will take that back. <laughs> yes. But what we have to be aware of as that happens is neoliberalism is, as I see it, just sort of one of three points on a triangle. You know, you've got neoliberalism. Uh, the first people who see the, the, the problems with neoliberalism are kind of the fascists. Right. Mm. Who see neoliberalism as this giant one size fits all industrial techno solutionist technocratic thing. And we're going to fight back by getting back to the soil. Rushkoff's localism is us is blood and soil. Right. So you get that poll. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not talking about there. And then the other poll is like that kind of bless his heart, but that kind of Zizek leftist accelerationist. Let's bring the end, you know, as Marx would say, bring the end of this capitalist thing so we can build our new socialist utopia reality. It's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Don't do that either. It's like, that's why I keep saying the theory of change is the change. Like the way in which we go about changing things is the reality that we're living in because reality is always changing. So it's why I'm I'm so intent on people using gentle and compassionate frames yeah. and methods for yes. uh, moving through these changes. I I, I love it. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you. Really, it it means a lot to me that that you said those things. Hello. Hey. Do you think that attention is a non-renewable resource? When you were speaking about kids and the next generation and what's happening next? Do you think they'll be able to actually integrate who they are and think for themselves? Yeah. I mean, you mean, or do I think that the things we're doing to ourselves now are so uh, attention depleting that their, their attention span or range can't be restored? A little bit. Like, where do you think they'll get the resiliency to cultivate that? That's tricky. I mean, it pushes around the other end. I, I was, this is a roundabout way of answering it, but I was really fascinated by all the videos I saw on Instagram from people who had uh, failed to get Taylor Swift tickets. And yeah, that was funny. It was True. funny and sad. And but they had sat there staring at their screens for like six or seven hours waiting for their place to change. Right. Like looking at nothing, right, for the sole purpose of getting live to see somebody. And I'm thinking, well, if there's something that someone, they will sit there and sit there and sit there, and they got nothing, right? But the amount of time that they spent to do that, or, and I know it's it's algorithmic and all, but when I talk to someone who's like, you know, uh, I saw a, a teenager who who had, you know, binge watched some whole I don't know what hell series it was. It was like a shirtless boys on Netflix series, but they had been binged, watched the whole thing, you know, all 36 hours of it in 36 hours. So I wonder about our uh, attention deficit issues. I mean, I get, I get that the people making the programming are 
creating cuts and doing things that, you know, maintain someone's attention in those, in those situations. But I don't know. Uh, I, I wonder what someone would have said about those of us who were trying to read, you know, Finnegan's Wake or Ulysses and all the cut and paste literature he was doing and how it wasn't continuous. And what does that mean? So, I mean, my, my short answer would be, uh, yes, I think attention can be restored. And I feel like there's a generation of maybe that first gen, that sort of millennial generation is perhaps the most damaged by this. And the next generation has adapted in some ways to the technology. I think that, you know, I, I now look at like a, a social dilemma and those kind of movies and, and worry about the power of the algorithms over us and all. I, I think they may be overstated, you know, because these are the people telling us that in those kind of movies are the wizards or the people who see themselves as the former wizards of Instagram and Google, you know, who are still kind of drunk on their power and saying, oh, we had the power to do this. Now we'll use our, our great wizardry and power for good. You know, and when, when I look at the kind of damage that young people are getting now, the young people who are highly involved in social media, you know, and it's, you know, you know, cutting and depression and taking their lives and things. I wonder, well, is that the technology now or is it because they're looking at what they're looking at? <laughs> is it the content at this point? So I'm much more hopeful about um, these kids now than than I was. I'm I'm a little sad that the reading and writing level seems to be going away. I'm trying to be less judgmental and less, I guess, self-centered about it. I mean, here I am, a, a Jew who was raised on the idea of text as, as an urgent part of our maintaining our ethical humanity, the text and the written law. I became an author, so I really value writing and reading. But I have a classroom full of students who are intelligent, but they can't read or write. You know, and not at least not in a way that would communicate, you know, uh, uh, what used to be considered an eighth grade, you know, three paragraph essay that that's not in their skill set. So where do we find it? I think it's it's really that it's now it's looking at how can the current competencies be utilized to bring about the culture we want, you know, and sure, how do we bring forward the ones that they're losing, at least the same way we brought forward opera? you know, or, or, you know, or classical painting or something that these are, these are valuable, valuable pursuits. They're just not central. They're not central anymore. But yeah, I'm, I'm slightly hopeful about that. I, I, I see kids when they're under pressure, I see great things come out of them on the, for every one time a kid gets ganged up on, on Instagram for being, you know, too fat or too skinny or too gay or too straight. I see 10 uh, examples of kids on Instagram or our, our TikTok cheering each other on, you know, and, 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 and becoming uh, allies of each other, even allying without even checking, you know, <laughs> defaulting to being an ally of whoever's there. Um, so I, I'm, uh, I guess my answer is yes, it's it's replenishable or renewable or retrievable, um, but just sometimes in unrecognizable forms. And that in some ways, the wobble in the wheel, the discontinuity between this and that does give us an opportunity to inject or invest it with more 
um, compassion and empathy than whatever the, um, the, the, the dying system has been used for. It's a roundabout way of trying to be uh, a little cheery. <laughs> I like the take. <laughs> and, and honestly, yeah, it is, it's, it's something I think about quite often, especially when you talked about the content of what is being fed and how that would in turn affect what they themselves will create in the future. I mean, yeah, I agreed, like probably not reading and writing. I think that's interesting how you're seeing that shift in your classroom right now. And what will that mode be later on is, I mean, I think that's exciting. <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, in some ways, and and I, maybe you're kind of making me realize this. I feel like I'm shifting right now my attention from context to content. You know, I've spent 20, 30 years in the medium is the message, right? And that's because the medium was changing. And I feel like the medium changed. You know, we're kind of there. You're, we're, we're soaking in it. And I'm becoming again in my old age here, a little bit less interested in the context, in the medium, and becoming more interested in the content again, which is maybe why I want to sort of move away from the nonfiction, which is where I keep talking about frameworks, and move back into fiction. I mean, the next thing I want to do is like a graphic novel or, you know, work in television even. I want to kind of play with narrative and story and, and, and see where... Um, you know, I just think there's the, the, the stories we're telling ourselves are not, this is a big broad brush, but I, I feel like the stories we're telling ourselves as I look around mainstream, you know, Amazon Prime, Netflix, HBO media, they're not, I don't like these stories. I, I think we, we, we deserve better ones. So that's sort of where I want to go now. I think we'll all go with you. <laughs> Sure. I'm ready to work with you on them too. Please. I don't want to do it alone. So I experienced something today in Discord. I I, uh, I teach kids chess and um, I love when kids raise their hand like and they can't get the hand any higher, right? And they're just, you know, their eyes get real big like, oh, please, please pick me. And uh, I was feeling that way when you were talking about game B, a lot of the things today. What a great conversation, everyone. And I just, I just mostly want to say uh, Douglas, that I think your critique of Game B is so important, and I hope you do talk with all those folks more. I, I just really think you're part of that whole movement, and your criticism is 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 paramount there. Mostly because I think you bring a lot of humor and kind of the anti-pedantic way that Jordan Hall can be, and. John Bravaki and all those guys. So they, we need that antithesis there in that conversation. And I hope it won't become polarized and, oh, those guys over there, you know, da, 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 da. So anyway, I wanted to just say that because I think your critique is brilliant and so poignant. And I know those guys would all love it too. Uh, well, it's interesting. You know, I, uh, Jim Rutt was one of the people who emailed me. Um, he's like the main game B guy. And I've been on his podcast way before. And, you know, he emailed me like, literally like eight minutes after the first medium post went up and i'm like oh my god he must have some instant google search that <laughs> he gets an alert in his pocket when someone mentions game b but he's like you've got to come on you've got some profound misunderstandings here um and i think what he's gonna say is that game b doesn't mean to be an instant transformation from here to there and i think what 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 he will do is talk about an incremental change of moving from here to there and that's when 
I can bring up what I forgot who it was here was talking about, where I can bring up, okay, so then are you willing, if this, if, are you willing to let go of the plan once we start, you know, once we start on the journey towards whatever this anarcho syndicalist networked blockchain stack of ideas is, once we start there, are you cool if it goes somewhere else? You know, it doesn't work out as planned, you know, and it would be that, which is good just to really play with, um, to play with his flexibility and at least to get them on record saying, yeah, you know, we'll let this go anywhere we want. And then, and if they're thinking about it that way, then maybe they'll be a little bit less focused in the way they talk, a little bit less focused on outcome and a little bit more focused on process. Because for me, process, this is what I'm trying to say today. Process is outcome. Process is the thing. The way you do your life is the way you live your life. You know, that's what we have. And if the, if the way you get there is not congruent with whatever it is you want to get there, then, then you're, you're, you know, going the wrong way. Absolutely. And I, you know, I wanted to bring up one other thing and I know we're, we're running out of time, so I don't want to go on too much here, but in the right and left hemispheres of the brain and all these kind of things, uh, one thing I wanted to point out and going back to the neo-indigenous kind of sensibility that when we talk about right and left and the duality of things like that, I, I study a lot of Taoism and I and I feel that it's important to bring up like yin is in definition, it generally is related to feminine, but I don't think that's a very good definition of it. It is the shaded side of the hill. So or or the shaded side of anything. Like the planet we live on has a lit side and a shaded side, and they are very important together. Certainly, if we were always facing the sun, we would just roast, right? And the other side would be ice. And so they're incredibly important that we spin around and go between the light side and the dark side. And I think the brain is so similar in that way, and that we don't refer to it so much as male or female, um, but it certainly has those characteristics. And I I always just find that a a point of contention when people want to say oh well isn't yin female and 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 it just seems like that just creates a lot of problems and instead it's these complementary opposites that have to work together to be working in a functional way yeah and the other thing is when when they are working in a functional way the kind of the distinction between them becomes really paradoxical but I mean, when you know, you talk about the, the 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 dark side of the hill. I mean, an Aphrodite and the forest and the wet versus the dry and the dark versus the light and all that. I mean, but when you think about when you're really, really having sex, like who's inside who? You know what I mean? It kind of. I mean, I know we think about all oh, the male goes in there, but then where? But then they're in you, and it's like, but it's like what's inside, what's outside, and all that kind of stuff flips on itself and that's why the yin yang is in motion you know and that's so hard for people to get like the western version of the yin yang is this is black this is white this is male this is female here we go and da, 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 it's lined up you know and it's like no 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 the yin yang oh now you're a male female male female, male. <laughs> you know inside outside inside dark light dark you know it's 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 that i mean that's the difference between life 
and these maps that we're trying to draw. You know, that's the difference between the the ocean of waves and the the grid of longitude and latitude that the cartographer uses to explain it. You know, that grid has ultimately nothing to do with what's going on in the water. And I think that's where um, these yin yang, left, right, up, down, male, female things are so valuable as understanding like wind or or motion, but they're not valuable as static constructs, you know. And that's where we get uh, we get into such trouble. But yeah, you know, and keeping it alive, keeping it, you know, as as our, our first person was saying, keeping it as play, you know, lets that dance between these elemental forces be realized. If there's not an active dance happening, then yin yang, black, white, male, female means nothing. Right? It means nothing. It's 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 an artifact of a phenomenon that is no longer occurring and is a waste of energy to try to to try to think about. It's that it's that trying to lock it down and nail it down. You know, it's back to that that metaphor, that that motion thing. You put these words on it, and that's fine, but the words are not the thing. You got to you know, reconstitute it through lived activity. And then you kind of get it as a, a, a passing, a passing moment of clarity. You know, at the end of, um, at the end of Waiting for Godot, you know, Vladimir says, you know, a stride from the grave and the difficult birth, the grave digger puts on the forceps. He like has this moment of clarity about the, the, the this moment, this transience of life. And then right after that, he goes, what did I just say? <laughs> it's gone, right? And I think that's really it. That it's in the experience is is where it happens. And yes, it's fun. And I'm a writer. I could sit and write about it later and try to come up with all these clever ways of saying it so that someone else can go, "Oh yeah, that's yeah, yeah that that's what I had too." But that's not the thing. The thing is that we get to live the, get to live the life and and have those experiences. In closing, um, this is one of those for me. This is why this is so much, uh, so much more fun for me than doing a monologue or something, or even a regular show. This is like this is Team Human. This is the this is the most essential form of Team Human. I've I've uh, or iteration of this project is when the team, so to speak. I don't even like the word team so much anymore because it it, it people think that means that there's another team or an anti team, but I don't mean it that way. But when the team is here, when the when the gaggle is here and interacting with each other. I mean, you know, we are certainly greater than the sum of our of our little parts. So thanks for that. And thanks thanks for being on Team Human. And thank you for being on Team Human. You can join us live in the Kibitz Room next month by becoming a supporting member of the team. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelaine and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 